Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is entitled You Gave Me the Key. It is from the album I Thought of You, and it is by the great Julie Dwyeron. Julie Dwyeron. There, I repeated the name because we talk about later in the episode, well, in the Patreon exclusive part two, we talk about the pronunciation of her name. And I almost edited her saying it and putting it put it in the intro, but I'm lazy, so I didn't. So I just said Julie Dueron because I didn't want to edit her voice in. By the way, anyway, uh, that album I thought of you is is great. Julie Dueron is great. I've been a fan of hers for a very, very long time, um, and I. I cannot say enough good things about her music. It she's one of my favorites. There's so many great songs. I have a playlist uh of her music that I've made just for me of all my favorite songs by Julie Dueron because she's so fucking good. So I was a little nervous when we were going to do this interview. And my voice sounds a little weird. I don't know if I was sick or if I did something, but my voice sounds a little funny. But it doesn't matter. I was a little nervous, but she's so easy and great to talk to. I felt like we were old friends. We talked for like two hours, and as I said, the, there is a part two that lives exclusively on my Patreon. You could go to themattdwire.com and you could become a Patreon subscriber, and you could listen to that part two. And you can uh, listen to all my other part twos. There's a lot of them. I've interviewed a lot of great people, and for some reason sometimes they talk to me far past the allotted time I've ta- discussed, and then I have a part two. And that's where you could hear them on my Patreon. So go to themattdwire.com, check that out. Also, I recently did a project with Adam McKay, Oscar-winning filmmaker Adam McKay, and record label Sub Pop. Uh, we did a compilation. All the benefits go to the Climate Emergency Fund. The album is called The 11th Hour, 11th Hour Song for Climate Justice. And there's a lot of great artists on there. Deer Hoof, Fake Fruit, Moby, Mud Honey, The Death Valley Girls, Shannon Lay. Uh, God, the list goes... There's 20 songs. 20 songs by 20 great fucking artists. All of who, with the exception of Moby, have been on my podcast. Maybe I'll get Moby. I don't know. But go to the show notes... Please buy that album, especially since the holidays are coming. It'd be a nice gift. And 100% of the proceeds go to the Climate Emergency Fund. They are fighting climate justice. They fund activists who are helping make our world a better place. Please buy that album. Share it. It's also streaming if you want to buy it and stream it. So that you stream it, it keeps giving money. Um, Very proud to have worked with Sub Pop. It really is incredible. In the show notes are all things. Shannon Lay, or not Shannon Lay, Julia Dweron, that. Go always look at my show notes. All the things I talk about, I put in the show notes. And speaking of things, I'm going to plug two things by friends of this podcast. One, 
Uh, Perpetual Doom, one of my favorite labels, a truly independent label. And my friend Lou runs that. We became friends because of his label and the podcast, but we talk all the time and check in with each other and support each other. But uh, Perpetual Doom is a small label. They're doing a, 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 uh, a subscription thing called the uh, Doom Preservation Society. Uh, it's, a, it's a subscription bundle that delivers fresh doom to your doorstep randomly throughout the year. And the su- survival of the label depends on this. They're running a 45-day campaign. I'll put that in the show notes. You could go to perpetualdoom.com. You can go to their Instagram band camp. But become uh, a... Uh, you know, a subscriber to that. I'll put the link in the show notes. Please check that out. Please, please, please. Also, friend of my podcast, I've been on his podcast a bunch. Mike Bridenstine is a great stand-up comic, one of my favorites. Moshe Kasher calls him a cross between Hemingway and Belushi, and that's a very accurate fucking description. And Kumail Nanjiani said, one of the most effortlessly and naturally funny people I've ever met. And that is true. That is true. Anyway, Mike has an album coming out called Hustle. It is on a special thing records, uh, which I have a comedy record out on their label. They, they're they a great label, but uh, he's got an album coming out December 16th, which he might not know this is the anniversary of Second City's uh, starting, the famous comedy theater, which I started at. Mike is truly one of my favorite comics and one of my favorite people on the planet. And he, you've seen him on Adam Devine's House Party, Last Call, Carson Daly. But uh, the link to that album is in the show notes. He's also got another album. Check it out. Also out on a special thing. So you could buy his record. And fun fact, my wife did the photo for the album because she's a fancy pants motherfucking uh, photographer. So please buy that. And uh, you can go to the Kelly Ardwire, my wife's website, and she, she'll she build you a website, by the way. Just throwing that out there. Uh, this... So those are the things I'm plugging. Uh, please go to the show notes. Buy all of these things. The holiday season is coming. Buy, buy, buy. Stuff, stuff, stuff. These are thing, good things to give to. Buying Mike's album, that money goes to an individual a special and a special thing. Two indie cool form people, things in the world. Uh, my thing with Sub Pop. And then, of course, buy Julie Duaron's music in the show notes. Because she's fucking great. God damn, she's good. And this conversation is great. So please enjoy my conversation with the great Julie, Julie Dueron. And I've read where you said, you're, somebody asked you what your songs are like, and you said lifelike. And I was like, boy, that just nails it. Because I couldn't really huh. figure out how I, f- like, I feel something when I listen to your music. And I'm like, it is. It's lifelike. And it, like, relates in a way I feel, uh, it, like, emotionally differently than a lot of music does to me. Well, gosh, thank you. I actually was just working on a new song just, like, 10, 20 minutes. Well, the reason why I was so late getting in the shower was because when I was I was walking my boyfriend's dog, because mine's in New Brunswick right now. Um, and I brought her to the dog park and did a big walk. And then I got back but I started writing a song like with my voice memo while I was walking and then I I came in and, and worked on that for like three minutes while I was trying to figure out which key to sing it in with the guitar and then I and then I was like I better get in the shower because but the reason I was so basically I only had like three minutes to pick up I was planning on working on it because 
you know, my boyfriend's at a rehearsal and he's going to be, and I wanted to work on it a bit before. And then I, I kind of forgot. So I was like, Oh, try it. And, and that's why I was just relaying the story of like, why. but yeah, that's how they come basically. Like, I think, so they either come in the past, they've always come on walks, uh, either on a walk or if I'm before when I used to do a lot of cycling, they would come, but I haven't done that in a while since like I've had my last kid. And then, um, although I did just get a new bike, but that's on the side. Um, and then, <laughs> um, but I, uh, I either, I, I used to a lot when I'd be driving long drives, I could come up with some melodies if I don't listen to the radio. Um, but usually it's on a walk and usually I've tried it cause you know, you often get answered or I often get answered, like ask this question in, in interviews or something like which comes first, the melody or the lyrics, or do you do that? Do you do that to play with the guitar and then write that? Like, you know, how do you do it? And I think mine always comes like, it's so weird. Like the, the first opening sentence comes with a melody and then I just go from there. It's like the weird, I don't know where it comes from and how it happens. And, yeah. So I don't know. It's really weird. And that's how they come. And then like the first verse and then maybe sometimes two, if I'm lucky, but then I usually, sometimes I can get to a chorus and then I work on the rest when I get home. But do you, do you ever sit down and go, I'm going to write a song or do you wait for something to come to you from the cosmos? Yeah. Sometimes I do as well. And that, and I'm always surprised that it actually goes okay. Like, <laughs> cause usually I wait for them to come and then, um, Sometimes I'm like, oh, it's been eight months. I should probably write a song. And then like, uh, then if I make the effort, like I can write a bunch in that. I can write really well on a deadline too. Like I can go years without doing it. I just don't even think about it. And then, and then all of a sudden I'd be like, I probably should put a record or, you know, if someone asks for a compilation, then I can do it. Yeah. So like if I was to like push myself, I probably would have a lot more records. Uh, actually, because I waited so long between solo records now I'm kind of in a writing mode anyway so uh, I think that I'm just gonna make another record pretty soon and just keep it going but I already have like eight songs for the next record so if I wanted to I could probably record in February and but yeah they come kind of from I don't know where they come from it's it, really weird I mean I write I don't write music but I write but it's interesting that some it's just like it comes out of you're like suddenly you have an idea and you're like I don't know and yeah. it's like, sometimes it's completely unrelated to you as a human. You're just like, I don't know what the fuck this is. <laughs> I know. Well, that's, yeah. Sometimes I don't even know what the song's about. I mean, it makes sense with my life. Sometimes it's like, or sometimes it can be about many things. And so I choose to leave them a little, sometimes they're more vague than they appear. <laughs> like sometimes, they're not, sometimes it seems like they're about something specific and then I, and they're not necessarily, but they're about a bunch of things. But yeah, I don't know. It, I feel really grateful because I seem to be able to write if I need to write and, and that's nice, but I don't put a lot of pressure on myself to like get up in the morning and like, although I would love to play guitar every day, but it usually ends up being like the last thing I make time for. Right. I'm, I'm annoyed. When you sit down to write an idea, do you, do you go to an emotion or do you, how do you search for that? That's a great question. Hmm. I always thought that's what I was doing. Like I, I tended to always err on the emotion side, like try, I, my goal was always to help or to make, 
to like evoke some kind of emotion, whether it be sad or happy. Most usually it was kind of on the sad side, but um, just, um, but now when I write, like, cause I don't write when I'm super sad. Like I, when I'm really sad or I don't seem to be able to write or work. Um, and usually it's when I come back out of that and I'm like coming back into them, going for my walks and stuff. Then, then what I just went through, I'm able to like sing about it then when I'm not in it, you know? So I think, I guess I'm probably going for an emotion. I mean, I think, I don't know if you asked me that yesterday or tomorrow, I would probably have an answer for it. <laughs> um, All right. I'll set up a call. Um, do, yeah. Do you, could you pinpoint why you tend to go towards sadness more? Is there? That's a, well, I think, you know, in the later years, I was trying to write about happier things because I was trying to have like a balance between not just be. And also, I, I, I think that I could add here that I don't even when my songs are sad or I, I try not to have them completely be like completely without hope, you know, like I, I or at least in my live shows, <laughs> I do a really good job of balancing the sad and the happy. And I usually like I'll play like a really sad or maybe heavy emotion song and then I'll like have the ability to make people laugh in between songs so that people will like laugh and then laugh it off and then I go back deep again into like a sadder emotion again so in live it can be like a bit of a roller coaster but I guess that's how I feel like life is for me like there's ups and downs and it's never just steady and so I think that I try to keep a balance in later years between sad and happy but I think the reason I was more sad before in what I was writing was because I had, was sad, I guess. <laughs> like, and yet even, but I, I never stay 100% sad all the time. So like, I'll be sad and then I'm like happy. Like maybe I'm a little bit erratic and I'm like all over the place. So I guess I'm actually a very emotional person, I think. And maybe I, I find it easier to express myself in the sadder emotional part, I guess. Also, I think that sometimes I feel like when I'm singing, when the, when the songs are too happy or whatever, it almost feels like you're bragging. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I love the idea of singing like really happy songs and stuff and, be, and, and being uplifting or whatever, but I, I don't, sometimes I feel like just kind of bad if like things are super great all the time. So I, I like to keep it in a balance. Yeah. Sometimes... Pollyanna-ish. There's a there was a band in the early two thousands. I I won't name, but everything was this happy and it was like so syrupy and sugary. Polyphonic spree. There I said it, and it just was. Just, <laughs> but and nothing against him, but I was just like it was just too much. It seemed yeah. insincere to me. To me, other people loved it, so I'm not going to say. But for me, I was just like, all right, already. To sing about somebody dying. <laughs> oh yeah, well you know what? I can't. I I didn't. I missed a lot of music. There's a lot of music I didn't hear. So I remember reading all about them, but I don't really know exactly what they sounded like. But yeah, I feel like I don't know. There has to be a balance. I feel like I I, I tend to like I I try to be. Yeah, I used to always be going for trying to evoke an emotion or like a or something that people could relate to. You know, because I think everybody has ups and downs and 
And also what I've learned in, in more recent years when people have talked to me about some of my songs and when they tell me like that, the, how that, how it related to them or how it, I really liked hearing like how the songs help them too. Like how, like it seems like a lot of people go through similar things. And so I think that if we're just tend to try and keep it super happy all the time, then there's a lot of, I, I don't know that it's, it's as beneficial, you know, cause it's not necessarily realistic. I think so. Yeah. I think I like to have the balance. Yeah. I think it's good to like, I just, I think I've always felt really bad about being like, I would don't want to be in like in your face about like my happiness, you know, like, I guess <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why I avoided it for a long. And also like I had some really ups and downs and I, I, you know, I had some things in life that I, I took a long time to like get over. And, and, uh, so I wasn't there yet to write like, I don't know. I'm trying to write a lot about nature now, like, because it, it does seem to really help me. Like every time I go for a walk, anywhere even when it's in the city like right now I'm in Montreal which is like an amazing city so I this city is like one of the best in the world if not the best only, <laughs> anyway I've, I think it's such a great city and when I'm walking around even here like I started writing a song even and I used, I wrote a lot some of my favorite songs when I lived in Montreal like I uh so but I read a lot of them in the woods and I read a lot of them like when I'm swimming and Actually, not when I'm swimming in a pool, though, because I'm too obsessed with counting my laps. But when I'm swimming in a lake, <laughs> I, like, have to write down how many lengths I do every time I swim. It's, like, a weird habit. I feel there's something, like, even showering, like, there's something about water that just kind of get kicks everything back in. Like, it washes away the brain and restarts it. That was Yeah. Because <clears throat> if I'm stuck, I'll go jump in the shower. Or, but like walks yeah. by water are the best. I know. And that's so funny. So I'm, so I, I have a lot of songs where I sing about being in the water or like a, a lot of, I mentioned the water a lot in my songs and also the woods and the, um, and trees and stuff. But also, but, um, yesterday, so I've been in Montreal and I've been swimming every day for since Sunday. I found a local pool that I can go to and, um, and uh, yesterday, so I'm doing these shows opening for Martha Wainwright, which has been amazing. I mean, like, that's just what an opportunity to be able to hear her sing every night. Like, her voice, I, what is amazing. It's amazing. I'm so grateful. And and last night, so we've, we've been playing these kind of, like, really amazing venues around Montreal and in Quebec. And, and the bigger kind of concert spaces have like showers there in the back rooms. And so like I had one the other night and then I had one last night, but like I, before, yesterday I had a bath in the daytime to relax and answer some email while I was there, which is always dangerous bringing your phone in the tub. But anyway, I did it. <laughs> I, I haven't dropped this one in the tub, but I have dropped other ones in the tub. And, um, Anyway, I had a bath, and then yesterday I had a shower before my show, and I got out, like, I set my alarm, and, like, I totally lost track of time yesterday as well, and I came out of the my shower, and, like, Martha and her band were all there, and my hair was soaking wet, and I had to be on stage in, like, two minutes. Like, I was starting at 7.30, and I was, like, trying to, like, dry my, scrunch my hair, and then I went on stage with soaking wet hair. Like, I couldn't believe it, like, in a concert hall. Like, it was like, oh, God, who did I think I am? But, yeah, I needed to be in the water. I don't know. Something about it. It is. We're it's, very lucky to have access to it. It's like, I, I not a day goes by where I don't think about how lucky I am to have access to water. It's, it's a, every human like there's something we got to work on. Every human needs it. And yeah, like it's 
crazy that they're, oh, anyway. I'm looking forward to living closer to it. Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm far from the ocean where I am. I'm, it's like 50 miles away from me, so... Which isn't technically... Oh, and then in Chicago, not Chicago, Minneapolis. But Minneapolis is not on the lake, okay? But there's ten. It's the state with ten thousand lakes, and it's right by the. It's right by the Mississippi. The Mississippi, yeah, right, right, right. So I'm. Um, when you were talking about sad and I I was going to say that there's something about your songs and also, and I find it with the work that you did with Phil Olverm, which the Lost Wisdom album is one of my all-time favorite albums. Mm. Um, but there's something emotional. I, I wish, I hope I can articulate this properly because I'm just a dumb working class kid from Chicago. <laughs> 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 but there's, there's, there's like, it's almost like philosophy or poetry and music, like where I feel like I'm, feel an emotion but when i get to the end of a, one of the songs and a lot of your songs as well i'm lumping that all in together mm-hmm. it feels like you've learned something or grown that's how i feel when i is that sound crazy that sounds crazy well <laughs> oh no i well i mean if you're talking about phil's song, phil's songs are like uh phil's songs really blow me away like his Ability to sing, like he also obviously has been heavily influenced by nature and and uh, like I think sort of like haiku and Buddhist philosophy and stuff like that. Seemingly like the his songs really blow me away because and his voice to the way he s- sings them. It's like I've tried to explain this before. Like I find his voice reminds me of like um of like a tree. Like his voice reminds me of like let's. I want to make sure I explain how his voice makes me it makes when I hear him singing it's like a it it makes me think of like 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 a yeah like what I think a tree would sound like if it because it like it's very warm and and I don't know it's warm and it makes me feel grounded and it makes me feel um secure and I so when he sings those words yeah I come out feeling smarter and more educated <laughs> after I listen to <laughs> at least to Phil's songs uh, in terms of mine because um, Phil is also has just a really great philosophy about like he's just a wonderful person to spend time with and, and I've been very grateful to have him as a friend and to have done those collaborations and and known him for so long and, and uh, toured with him because he's got a great sense of humor too so it's really fun to tour with him and I think in terms of my songs, I mean, it's hard to talk about your own songs in a way that, like, after someone compliments you, I don't really know how to respond, actually. It's, but Well, I was just going to say, I feel like when I listen to your songs, mm-hmm. I'm pulled into a world. And, like, with it comes a lot of visuals. Like, it's, I inhabit the world, which doesn't happen a lot with music, for me. Oh, and yeah. I don't know if, do I sound like a lunatic? <laughs> No, no. And, you know, I've always like spent a lot of care and this is something that I think I made a, I actually made a conscious decision of this like years ago that I, I didn't want to try and use a language that wasn't mine. So like, I, I didn't want to use, like, even though I love reading and I love, like, I love knowing, like having like a vocabulary and I love knowing like a lot of different words for the same thing or whatever. But when, when I'm writing, 
my songs, I prefer to choose kind of a more simple language that more people could identify with. And then you could make your own visual to go with it. You know what I mean? So have it be not necessarily vague, but um, more open to make your own visual to go with it. So I think that I, I could see them being kind of visual, actually. I, I, I think, at least when I sing them, I see visuals the whole time I'm singing, but I don't know what other people are seeing. But it's I, I don't think you sound like I think that's really nice what you said. When you when you perform live, do you when you're performing, do you see the visuals that go along with the songs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I tend to sing mostly with my eyes closed. Um, but in the last year, now that I've been doing shows again, um, I'm trying to look at the audience from time to time, and I've gotten a little better at doing it without forgetting what I'm singing. Because before I used to, I used to always have to close my eyes to stay concentrated. Because if I started looking around right. at the people. Then I would start thinking other things. I would be wondering, like, if somebody looked sad, then I would think, like, oh my gosh, do they hate my music? And I wonder if I'm bumming them out. And there was a, then I would crash and just go all downhill from there. So then I had to start seeing with my eyes closed early on because of that. And then as a result, I would be seeing the songs, like, I would just see the images, yeah, or the colors or whatever that I was feeling, and mostly images, I guess. And then, yeah, just recently I've tried to open my eyes to, like, because I was like, oh, maybe it's kind of boring when people just see me with my eyes closed for 45 minutes or whatever. So I, know. I thought maybe I should make eye contact. And often I, I can make eye contact if I can't see the audience. And I'm not really making eye contact, but I'm looking at them, I guess. Yeah. You should just start <laughs> winking at people. Just really just... <laughs> just finish a song and give it like a really big, like, our gang little rascals <laughs> wink. <laughs> yeah. Well, gosh. Maybe I'll try that. Um, I have a show Friday. Maybe yeah. I'll try Friday. Although it's like in one of those theaters or whatever, so I won't be able to see the people. So the, but I won't know how they'll react. I just read that about like <clears throat> Louis Armstrong had visuals that he would. That's how he played, and it would be like an yeah. old guy he saw on the street in like 1942. Yeah. Like it was like really fascinating it's to read about. So I have a few memories that come. So there's. I actually just mentioned this to someone the other day that. Um, so like there's I have a few songs that when I performed them for the first time like 20 years ago um I still like there's one song called Last Night that I had played like in London England I had just flown there and you know it was my first tour I was doing since my third baby like it was the first time I was going away in a year after she had been born and so it was like emotional and I was and I played this song that I had written like just two nights before or the night before I left on the tour, actually, like I was putting her to bed and I started was singing to her. And then I like, whoop, I just like, put her in the crib and like went and got my guitar. I was like, Bye, I have this idea. And so like I um, wrote this song and then I landed in England and I went and did that show. And there was two guys sitting on the stage, just on my left on the sitting on the stage. And they taught, I was opening for Damien Gerardo. It was like this really cool show. And, and they talked during the whole set. Those two guys, they talked Oof. on my stage, like sitting next to me on the stage. They just talked the whole time. And every time I played last night, anytime I play that song, I, I see those two guys. And and I have a bunch of visuals, yeah, that that I get, are attached to this to particular songs that I see every time I sing. It's so interesting, actually. Does it keep it? it keep you in the sort of emotional state of the song, those visuals or, or do I think it could, I mean, the, those two guys talking, that's kind of a downer. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, I would, I, I, I'm angry hearing it. 
<laughs> yeah, so I try to think more about Rosie and her being a baby and then like me singing to her. Like I try to think about about that. But I those those guys at least make an appearance and to remind me, I guess. <laughs> those they, Yeah. But no, I think that they do keep me in them. I think that a lot of the emotion, the visuals do keep me in the right mood. Did you And I'm also pretty good at like when I sing the songs live, like I'm pretty good at remembering or of uh, of like dropping into that emotion when I'm singing it. I think. I mean, I feel like I am. But when you started, because I'm not sure of the your time frame with Eric's trip, but mm-hmm. I was I don't know if that was pre or post the first child. But I guess what? Uh, oh. Yeah. So I was 18 when we I was 18 when we started Eric's trip, and then I got pregnant when I was 21. So it was pretty. When did you, when did you start writing? Because you of music. Because I know you started as a photographer, and I'm like curious of that sort of transition. Which my partner's a photographer, by the way. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I was music all my life in various ways, but I never really was super self disciplined. And my parents didn't. They, my parents have always been just really encouraging. Like, if you like doing it, then that's cool. But they were never like, you have to go practice this thing. And did you practice that? And did you? They weren't really reminding me to do it. So like, I, I don't know. Maybe, I, I mean, I don't want to change anything because I like the way it is. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, who knows if I had like practiced like piano for like. <laughs> 20 hours a week when I was a kid, if I would still be doing music, you know what I mean? But, um, uh, I guess what I was going to say was I, so I started pretty young, but I started like taking guitar lessons when I was 15 after I taught myself a little bit with this one book I found in my house that my mom had had when she was younger. And, um, then I, I did like saxophone all through school. And so, but I started really playing the guitar when I was 15 and like I had written my first song when I was like 14 about this guy I had a crush on who went to a different school that I would see sometimes at lunchtime when I'd be walking home you know so I I mean he has no idea who I am and I so that was my first song and then but no one I think ever heard that one and then I started writing I guess when just before I joined Eric's trip or maybe in Eric's trip and then yeah I just Luckily, that was uh, all of us were writing songs for that, so it wasn't like I had to like really bring that many songs to the project. I, like mostly, Rick was Rick was pretty prolific, and then Chris also was very prolific. So I kind of just I I didn't like push myself to write a lot. I just would whenever I'd have a song. Sometimes Rick would get me to write a few things. Like he would maybe push me more than I was gonna push myself. So luckily. Yeah, so I started back then, but I think when I was 15 or 16, I would have started writing for fun, but nothing like, I don't know. I did make like a cassette for Christmas once when I was like in Eric's trip, but before we signed or like maybe early on, and I'd made 10 copies. I borrowed Rick's four track and gave them to friends for Christmas and I've heard that there's a couple copies out there in the world. I would like to try and get a copy. I'm very shy and embarrassed about it, and I'd like to hear it. <laughs> I don't have a copy. Did you? Who were the songwriters that influenced your songwriting? That's a great question because it's hard to say. But I think like a lot of the people that I I would say. Like, and and so I don't want this to sound like I think my songs are like them, but these are people that I would have listened to a lot 
in conjunction with when I was learning how to write. So I think my main influences when I started writing would have been like, I think Neil Young and Leonard Cohen, like I loved, I still love them. And I think uh, also at the time when, when Eric Strip started, like I was listening to a lot of like Sonic Youth and My Bloody Valentine and I really had discovered Pavement. Uh, I think they had put out their, like Slanted and Enchanted like around 91 or something when Eric Strip was just starting. So I, I, there was a lot of that kind of stuff that I was like really into. And then I, you know, I had a few Bob Dylan records when I was in high school and I started to explore that, but I don't think that's necessarily what influenced my songwriting like that. It was more like really Neil Young and Leonard Cohen, Neil, both of those. And I think that I would say if I had to like, that would be who I would pick in terms of like very influential in terms of songwriting. I mean, if if, if I could even be like 1% of like Leonard Cohen's like lyrics are obviously very, poetic and I would never try to compare mine to that but I do feel like I, I I feel a lot of emotions when I listen to his songs and I also feel a lot of emotions with Neil Young's songs because they're but they're very two different songwriting styles so I think that kind of did a good job of kind of I think influencing me but I would have to think of a few other people obviously I'm influenced by a lot of stuff it's just those would be the two main ones at that time and still yeah yeah Leonard Cohen I saw him walking down the street once in Los Angeles and it was like I mean LA you see people all the time and you're just like whatever but Leonard Cohen it's like it's like God was walking. <laughs> it was like, and he was in the suit and he was in Larchmont oh. Village. I don't know how well you know Los Angeles, but like window shopping, just casually window shopping in a suit and a hat. Like it was, it was like total in character. Was, oh, amazing. I remember once he was like, he's apparently like someone had spotted him in a bagel shop, like in a bagel shop here, on, like in Montreal. And I remember like every time I'd come on tour, I would go to that bit, like a look to see if I see him in the bagel <laughs> shop. I was like hoping desperately to, you know, I almost got to see him play like Eric Strip was supposed to do like a reunion tour in Europe in 2008. And that's when I think that Leonard Cohen had announced like his tour and he was coming to play in Moncton, which is like the town where I grew up in, in, in a theater that holds like 800 people or something, or maybe not even, I don't know what the capacity is. Anyway, regardless, um, he was going to come. So, but I, it was going to happen at the same time as our tour. So I didn't buy the tickets and I really regret that because then we canceled our tour for other reasons, for like reasons for just, um, I don't know why it wasn't anyway. I guess I probably do know why it was canceled. And, um, and then I didn't, but the show was sold out already. I couldn't buy a Leonard Cohen ticket. And really in hindsight, I should have just gone down and tried to, I don't know, try to negotiate <laughs> an entry. <laughs> was Eric's trip on Sub Pop? I can't. Yeah. Was it, was yeah. that a part in the part of the fervor, the Sub Pop fervor era? Was, was it? I think so. I think we were in that fervor area. Era. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I was a dumb kid from Chicago. Um, but was that, did you notice that fervor? Like were you, uh, with the, with your band and like being sub pop or was that just yeah, totally? I think we did. No, we noticed it. Like we, we, uh, we were very, very lucky. I think, I mean, we were from Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada, like the East coast. Like nobody knows, nobody really knows like um not a lot of people know where that is necessarily you know and um and we were really 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 lucky like we weren't shopping our records around like we weren't trying to get signed we we 
weren't looking for any of that. We just wanted to make music in our basements and we weren't planning on touring. Like we didn't, we were just in a band. I don't think we had like super big aspirations. And then through chance, like they had an A&R person who was based on the East coast in, in Boston or near Boston. And, and she happened to hear like a, a band from Halifax on the radio one day. But then when she investigated it a little bit, she found out that they had been signed to Geffen. And so then she realized that, well, there's music in Halifax. So then, you know, she had like family from Yarmouth and then she did a weekend trip. And then when everybody found out like she was coming to town, like all the bands booked shows, like everybody made sure they were going to be playing that weekend. So that like Joyce, her name was Joyce Lynn, is Lynn, Joyce Linehan. And, um, and then she came to town and then she saw us play and, and it kind of went from there. But like, we, it was a total, yeah, we were very, very lucky. And I, I did at the time too, like I obviously loved Nirvana. Like it was really, I had gone the day that uh, Nevermind was coming out. I bought it on cassette and on vinyl, you know, cause I actually oddly enough had bleach before that came out. So I, um, I knew who they were before which is kind of rare for me to be ahead of the game and that kind of thing. But um, anyway, yeah. And uh, so we were obviously that whole sub pop connection and was really exciting for us. Although we didn't say yes to the first contract. We actually turned down the first wow. offer. I know when I think about that, it's pretty bold, <laughs> but we turned it down because we wanted like full creative control. So we were like, we don't want to go into a studio. And so they ended up offering a, another deal. <laughs> That's great. Were they not, I, were they not offering full creative control? That's because that seems like very much. I, of the era. I know. I don't really remember like, well, I was like 20 at the time. Uh, the deal that they had offered us was, yeah, it was going to be like, you know, a certain amount of albums, like each one conditional on like whatever you you negotiate as moving forward. And, the, but I believe, I don't think it said hundred percent creative. Like there was probably some little clause in there that said that they could have a say of where, you know, and I think that we were like, well, we want to be able to record at home in our basement the way we've been doing. And that's how we want to do it. So, um, so that's why, why we didn't sign the first one. <laughs> was that was that dizzying to be? Because Sub Pop was such such the cool the cool label at the time. Like I mean, everybody knew. Yeah. It must have been like I don't know. I mean, I can't believe we said no to that. I I honestly can't sometimes believe that, but it worked out great. And the thing is, like, they had offered us to go play this festival. Uh, and so the contract negotiation was happening during this festival in Vermont. Like we, we had said no, but we were still invited. We were still allowed to go do the festival anyway that they had already invited us to do. And, and then when Jonathan and Bruce saw us play at the festival, then I guess they really loved it. And so then they, they were like, well, they offered us kind of what we were looking for. And so that worked out great. Um, but yeah, it was like very exciting. I mean, I, I think that, uh, our, the first tour we went on basically, we had probably already signed a sub pop, but we put out an EP on, on an independent label from Halifax still. Cause we were, had already planned on doing that. So they said, go for like, keep doing that or whatever. And then that first tour, I guess maybe the news had been out that we signed or something. Cause that first tour we did, we were like, it was pretty much sold out everywhere. And it was, uh, although you know what part of that was because we got to open for Sonic youth in Toronto in 1992, you know, it was like, October or November in 1992 at this big venue that holds like 3000 people. And so the next time we went to Toronto in the spring, it was like 
sold out, but 300 people, like you only need like 10% of whoever was at the Sonic Youth show, you know, and then we're like, so it was, uh, and it kind of went from there. Yeah. We, I still get, can't get over how, what a time that was like the nineties, the early nineties was, you know, pretty exciting. I think for indie rock. Yeah. And I was in Chicago at the time. So there was the, there was a whole thing going on there that was. Yeah. Like touch and go with Chicago or touch and go and drag city. Right. Uh, yeah, Drag City, Chicago. And also, Thrill, jo- Thrill, Jockey Thrill Jockey was Chicago too. But yeah, Touch and Go was like the main because it was Shellac and Jesus Lizard and though though Red Red Meat was sub pop. Yeah, they were on sub pop. But it was yeah. it was just and I lived in the neighborhood that all the bands lived in, so it was like oh. it's funny. I probably was in bars with those guys and had no idea. I'd like talk to uh, David Pajo on the podcast and we were like in the same neighborhood. <laughs> it's like the whole time. Yeah. I think I remember when we played at lounge acts, we did a sub pop tour. And I think when we played at the lounge acts, I think, I think he was there. That's a well, legendary. Because, <laughs> because probably because of the other, like six, like six or satellite or probably because of the sub pop tour, I guess. Yeah. Lounge acts was legendary. I mean, that's, that was when they closed that place, it was really hurt mm. the, the music scene in Chicago. Because of the fucking, I bet. fucking yuppies. That's why. It was too loud. Oh, no. it, then it became like a shitty martini bar. It was like, what? <laughs> it was like, you got rid of a, a legendary place for fucking martinis? I hate that when people decide to move into what like a cool neighborhood or a neighborhood and they want to live in the city, but they don't want the stuff that goes along with that. Yeah, it's like you live, if you move next to a bar, then you've moved next to a bar, dumb fuck. It infuriates Yeah. Me. Yeah, it it can be like a, that happens with a lot of things. So, like I I know that I have a, like some I've heard of certain situations where people like date musicians, which is often a bad idea anyway. But um, <laughs> but where people fall in love with a musician and then they and so the, some of the things that you know when they first met that person they were doing music and they knew all this stuff, but then they eventually kind of want them to stop doing music, you know, and stay, get a real job or whatever. But but you but they were already doing that before. Like you know, the same thing. Like if you move into a neighborhood where where there was like cool local bars or local whatever doing like shows and things. And it's like, I remember being, yeah, there's some places in France where I was touring like 10 years ago where local little corner pubs or whatever were doing really cool little shows, but because it was too loud or I think one of the things that was ruining it was that when people would go out and smoke, they would be too loud. They would yeah. all be talking too loud and maybe that's part of the problem. So I think, um, but a lot of those little places have to close and then it takes all the life out of the the neighborhoods. It's insane. And I've lived in a number, in Chicago and Los Angeles where the neighborhoods change mm-hmm. like that. And I'm just like, this is not why I moved to this neighborhood to have it. Yeah. Un- and we need those, we need those independent bars for music, especially these days. Live Nation bought our local, like my old neighborhood's local venue. They bought the Echo and the Echoplex and it's like, now it sucks. I played the Echo. Yeah, the Echo was great. It was great yeah. and I lived walkable to it and it's just, it. now it's like Live Nation and it's all corporate bullshit and I'm like, there's no small oh. venues anymore. It's it's garbage. You, I, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Shoot. I mean, there's something to be said for house shows. House shows can be really fun yeah. too. Do you they do can be really cool because 
I have done quite a few of them. I, 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 at one point, I kind of wanted to do like start just touring that way because what ends up happening is like whoever's putting on the house show does a really good job getting like all their friends out and people out, and then like people who come to the show really, they're really respectful because they're in a house, so no one's going to talk all through your set, and then like then they really love, they really support, and then they buy your records like because they want like they want that. I guess the whole experience is kind of cool, so. They really, it's very nurturing in a lot of ways. But I also love playing like in traditional venues too. It's, I really love playing live and I, I love doing it. I, I prefer playing in smaller venues. I'd rather do like a packed small venue than like a really empty big one. But <laughs> I don't, I don't like, like big venues. Like I hate, I went, yeah. to, I saw Deerhoof recently at a, you know, pretty big venue and I was like, I, I want to, there was no chairs. I'm fucking in my fifties. I can't have, I need a chair. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a tough one. Actually. I heard standing. for like two fucking days. Like, you know, I was standing on concrete and I had brand new shoes on. I'm like, this is, I can't, I'm not a cool kid anymore. Oh yeah. You know, what's great about yeah. house shows. Just if you do one real, real quick tip, <laughs> the medicine cabinet and the jewelry box, just a little tip for you, Julie. <laughs> well, really? if I want to keep doing house shows, I got to stay out of the medicine cabinet. I just and blame the it on box. somebody else. I'm sure they got some kind of friend with a problem. You can just be like, "Yeah, I saw that guy in there, the twitchy guy." <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, but the house, there is. I think there is like um, there is like um, an organization in Canada that does like. I think there's like a whole réseau with some. There's like a. I'm forgetting the word in English right now. There's a whole. Oh, I'm forget. I can't remember the word. Réseau. Um, whatever the link French. Were you going to well, say that's, French? That's in French, yeah. But I can't remember. Anyway, there's like a network. Network. Uh, like a network of like houses that that will host shows, and I think it's like maybe I think Dan Mangan had started or whatever, and he. I think it's called like through the side door or inside. I can't remember now. But anyway, we talked about me possibly trying to create a profile and get in, into that at some point. But that was like 10 years ago or eight or five or I don't know. I, feel oh, like, I have no zero track of time. David Bazan's been doing it for, I feel like he was doing house shows kind of before a lot of people. Oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. Actually, I could see that. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask, uh, well, after... Eric's trip did you feel like that was a transition in your songwriting because you and did you know did you know you were going to go do solo stuff or were you kind of like lost after Eric's trip ended I don't know what happened there after (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding because I've like I love your music and the journey and like your new album and I'm like it there's definitely been a whole world that's happened Mm Well, so I think that I probably ever, I don't think I would have done music if I, like Eric's trip was a really big launch pad for me. Like, I don't think I ever would have tried to have a solo career um, had I not already done that band. Like Eric's trip was a really, really big reason that I'm doing music. It's pretty much, I, you know, I was thinking about this walking in the woods last in, in like March this year. I remember thinking like, I got to get in touch with Rick and let him know that because basically the reason that, ba- like when we decided to start that band, I, I was playing classical guitar and I wanted to really wanted an electric guitar. And I said to Rick, like we had, I don't even know if we were dating yet. We, we might've been dating at this point. And I was like, I really want to buy an electric guitar, but I don't, 
want to just play it in my bedroom. And then he said, well, let's start a band. Cause he had already been in like hardcore bands or punk bands or whatever. And then, and I was like, okay. And so we started Eric strip. So for the first year and a half in Eric strip, I was playing guitar and not bass. And, and, uh, I don't think I would have tried to have a silicone career cause I was so shy and so timid. Like, actually I think all of us were in that band and I just don't think that I would have gone for it. So then, so then Eric's trip. So I had my first child when I was 22 and then we put out two more records. We had put out love Terra and then, uh, and then I think we recorded forever again, uh, when I was pregnant for Ben. And so then we did, um, purple blue after when Ben was a baby. So we kept touring, we had, you know, and so when Eric's trip broke up, I think I was just like, well, I guess I'll keep doing this for a while. Like, I didn't really know what else to do. I had gone to school for photography, and that was what I had really wanted to do. Like, I wanted to become, like, a sort of, like, a photographer. Like, I really loved the style of photography of, like, you know, bands backstage and people, but, you know, behind the scenes. Like, that was kind of, like, what I was really into. And so I would always have a camera on tour and stuff, and... But I think I just decided to keep doing music because I think I thought, like, I didn't really know what else to do at that point. So I just kept kind of doing it. And and honestly, for the first little bit, like, I really tried to make music that was really different from what I was doing at Eric's trip. So I made a conscious decision to make, like, really quiet songs because I wanted to differentiate myself from Eric's trip. And I also didn't want to try and, like, recreate what I was doing in that band. So like, cause that band was a really special, it was like the sum of those four people like who were working together, writing like these songs. And that's, I didn't want to try and like find other people and try and recreate what I was doing in that band. So I really, at that point I was like, well, I guess I'm going to make like really quiet music. Cause like I'm now I'm alone. I'm going to make this quiet music. <laughs> you know, like, And so I did that for a while, and then I started when I started collaborating with other musicians just through touring and stuff. Then I decided to like kind of maybe make more louder music. Well, depended who I was working with, but yeah. So I did change my songwriting style a little bit after Eric Strip for sure. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. You, I felt like I had no choice. I felt like I had to. You, t- you tend to like collaborating right because you've done you did the album with phil you've done a couple like i've uh, done two with phil the two, two with phil. true yeah and then yeah. Um, forgive me i can't think of the gentleman's name you just put an album out with um, oh danny yes yes yeah 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 that's uh my partner we did that one during the pandemic so that was like yeah i collaborated with him and then uh Okerville. I've done was the Okerville stuff. River a split or was that a Well the Okerville River was yeah, the Okerville River was a split. So that was like a label in Spain called Aquarela Discos who who was gonna be putting out an EP of them and, and they asked me to do a split with them. So that it wasn't really a collaboration in that way, but um that was kind of the first time that it was like I guess that I, it kind of gets lumped in into all the media is like a collaboration but we didn't actually record together and play together so i did do a few shows with them though in later year after a few years after but um yeah and then i collaborated with like this band called the wooden stars and also herman dune who was from paris who i toured with them for a couple of years like playing bass with them in europe and then they they backed me up for one of my records and um 
I played bass on one of the records. So that was a nice collaboration. I also like played bass in this band called Shotgun and Jaybird for a few years. That was a Canadian band here. And, um, yeah, I think that I, I've sung on a few people's things. I also collaborate, well, collaborated. I was in like the, he passed away a few years ago, but, um, uh, Gord Downey, who's a Canadian singer and uh, songwriter here and was in a band called the Tragically Hip, was very well known here and uh, was a good friend. And we, he had me in his solo band. And so, um, but I wouldn't say I was like collaborating on the songwriting, but it was really fun to be in that band because uh, everybody was really, really positive and, and really sweet to make music with. So I think that to... I think I have to collaborate because also I did some stuff with Dan Romano too. Like the, the Daniel Fred and Julie album was really fun thing to do, which was a different Dan than Danny, <laughs> two different Dan's, but Daniel Romano. Fred Squire, is that who you re- re- Yeah. Yeah. Fred Squire was on the Daniel Fred and Julie record. So, and, um, but Daniel is very, 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 very talented too. You, you if you haven't checked out Dan Romano, he's kind of a, I don't know where it all comes from, but he's constantly, at it like he's never taking a pause um but uh, he played all the guitar stuff and on my new record he plays like all the keys and the guitar any extra guitars and stuff like that um on my new record so there's a daniel and a danny on my record and (laughs) his brother ian on the drums um yeah, I think collaborating for me is super important. I mean, sorry, I get a little long-winded sometimes about things, but I'm just like, <laughs> then I have to come back to like, I, I love collaborating because, uh, and also, of course, Phil. And um, the Phil thing kind of came together, came to like a little bit by surprise because I was going to be doing three shows opening for Maudi Uri or the microphones. I can't remember if it was, I guess it was Maudi Uri maybe, but same guy. But um, And I was on tour and then he... I had a few nights off before, so I was going to do like Seattle and Tacoma and and a Bell Bell. I can't remember the name of the other city, but I'm sure it'll come to me in uh, Bellevue. Uh, Bell Bell. I know what you're saying. I know this. It's oh, in Washington, it's so right? Close. It's in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, oh my gosh, it's right there. Anyway. We had a couple of nights off. I played in Vancouver, and then Phil came up to get me and Fred because we were going to go do these shows with them. And um, and uh, he picked us up, and we had a few days off in Anacortes, and then he wanted to show us his little studio that he was renting, just a little space, and he had his machine and everything there. And, and we thought it would be fun to record a couple songs, so we decided like we would do two Phil songs, two Julie songs, and two Fred songs. And then we were, I was like, well, why don't we start with yours? Because I wasn't ready yet to commit to which songs I wanted to do because <laughs> I'm a really hard time with commitment. That's another um, thing. But, um, and uh, so we started with the Phil song. It sounded really great. And then we did another Phil song and it was like sounding really great. And I was like, Phil, these, maybe we should just keep doing your song. Like they sound so good. And then like we did over two days, we did the whole Lost Wisdom album. Wow. And he would just teach us one. He would teach us in this. He wrote out all the lyrics like really fast. And I have still like I had the lyric sheets forever. And um, yeah, and then we just would he would teach play the song maybe like once, and then I would just sing along with him. Like pretty incredible experience, like really magical. So and then that's how that project came about. It wasn't like he wasn't like let's make a record. It was just like oh. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Conversations with Wire. Please remember, 
Go to thematdwire.com, become a Patreon subscriber, listen to the part two. All things Matt Dwyer is on the website. You can also get some merch. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Enjoy. Clear eyes, they have-